Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you like what we do here on The Axe Files, go on webbyawards.com, look up the category that says uh, Best Interview and Talk Show, uh, and give us a vote. Uh, And if you're interested, you can go on Best Host as well and give me one. I rarely have had the chance to ask for votes for myself before I generally ask for them for others. There are a lot of great stories in sports, but not all of them are on the field. One of those great stories is Jason Benetti, the television play-by-play man for the Chicago White Sox. Jason overcame cerebral palsy and some of the physical deficits that came with it to become one of the great young voices in sports today. But he's also a great voice for people who are going through similar challenges. I sat down with him recently on a visit to spring training. Jason Benetti, great, great to see you down here in beautiful Arizona. Um, I, I want to obviously talk to you a little bit about baseball, but uh, I'm really interested in your journey here uh, because it's an unusual one and to me an inspiring one. But tell me a little bit about the beginnings. Uh, your beginnings and some of the challenges that you had to overcome to get here. Well, it all started in a thousand watt radio station. And <laughs> I, anytime I anytime I answer that question, I sound like Ted Baxter. But uh, I, I grew up in Chicago for my first couple of years in the city. Then my family moved to the the south suburbs of Chicago. And I was. But you didn't have an. You you you're skipping over one part. Mm. Your, your birth was not an easy. Thing and uh, you've you've dealt with some deficits as a result of it. Yeah, my my recollection of certain aspects of it is not my own. It's my parents' recollections. Yeah. But I was I was born premature, uh, and I ended up getting sick while I was very young. I have cerebral palsy. Uh, had a couple surgeries when I was young. Uh, heel cord, hamstring, uh, a surgery on my eyes, and explain what cere- cerebral palsy is. Yeah, uh, it's such a varied disease or disorder, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's essentially that certain neurons in my brain don't fire the same way, don't match up essentially with the way the neurons that you would use for walking or whatever it might be uh, fire for you. Because of oxygen deprivation early in... Right, right. So what I ended up with, you know, I, I am not the world's foremost expert on CP in some part because I, I've never really wanted to identify only as that. Of course. Um, but, but what I'm left with is that I walk rather distinctly. Let's say I have a, I have a gait that looks more like a, a limp and 
that that's essentially I I've actually I've never in adulthood had my brain tested in some way. I think in part because you don't you don't want to know what all is deficient up there. Well, your brain seems to be functioning pretty well. I mean, that what you talk about the wide variance, that might not have been the case. There are people with cerebral palsy who suffer from more than physical disabilities but also intellectual disabilities. Oh, certainly. And and I I was a volunteer at a camp in Syracuse, which is is kind of going well beyond how this started, but I got to meet some kids who have significantly greater challenges than I do, speak with assistive technology, can't speak at all, whatever it might be. So uh, what I say about about my brain and not wanting to know what's going on up there is is sandbagging a little bit. I mean, I, I know that I'm a, a highly functioning human being, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But, you know, I, I had surgeries when I was a kid. Going back to your original question, mm-hmm. uh, I was in a wheelchair at points in elementary school. And how, how was that? In terms of relating to other kids, because you know, you know that I have a child with uh, with intellectual disabilities and epilepsy, and um, I, I remember how cruel people, particularly kids, can be at times about other kids who who have differences. Well, there's there's some level of cruelty, I think, for anybody when they're growing up. But but yeah, I. It, you're kind of a novelty when you're in a wheelchair in elementary school, right? People want to push you, not actually physically push you around, but actually push your wheelchair because it's a fun thing to do. They haven't seen a wheelchair before. So there was a lot of that. My parents were very involved in terms of field trips and things like that. But, you know, you get to middle school and high school, and people are going to call you names and things like that. But I, I once I got to high school, ended up with a group of friends that I felt very comfortable around. But, yeah, I mean, there, there were... There were certainly moments where you say, boy, I, I don't know why people are being mean in some way. I think I read somewhere that there were times when you, uh, when you were a kid when you felt like not going to school, that you didn't want to go to school. Yeah. There, I mean, when, when you go to school and there are people who say things to you that you don't really know how to process in middle school, I, I, I was... I ran into, in, in middle school, a shop teacher. His name's Mr. Menig, and he's actually a Sox fan, it turns out. I found <laughs> out after I got the job. Uh, he made me the assistant coach for the basketball team. And he's a wonderful man. He saw that I cared about sports and wanted to be involved in some way, so he didn't just make me a manager and go pick up the balls and the jerseys and things like that. He, he wanted me to, to be involved call plays sit next to him on the sideline things like that which is amazing to have somebody do that for you and get you involved in sports at such a young age but i I had a kid in gym class at one point say you know why mr menig made you the assistant coach and i said why and he said because he felt sorry for you and you know whether i should or not i remember that yeah it's very it's very well etched into my mind and i I had said that at some point over the course of the last year, and Mr. Menig sent me a text and was like crestfallen. And I said, it's, that's not you. That's, that's him saying it, but also kids don't know. Right. You know, Kids see something different, and it's just different. That's the way brains work. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you mention this teacher because almost every person I've sat with can point to some— who played a formative role 
some teacher who played a formative role uh, in their lives. I saw it in my, my daughter's life that when a teacher took a special interest in her, it made an enormous difference. Uh, do you have siblings? I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one. And your your this passion for sports was uh, an inherited. You have the gene, the sports gene. Your 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 folks were uh, big fans. Yeah, my my dad uh, my dad was a big football baseball fan. We watched basketball, baseball, football together. Uh, my mom's a huge sports fan, even more so now. She. There will never be a zero rating on one of my games. I can guarantee you that because she will be watching. But um, yeah, I and part of it was I grew up in in the heyday. Maybe not the heyday. Maybe it's it's the heyday now. But the the start of the video game sports mm-hmm. generation, the Madden people. Mm-hmm. So you could go home, watch sports, and call sporting events off your screen, which I did to the dismay of people playing against me. <laughs> but the, the, So you, brought, you were broadcasting at an early age. Huh? I, yeah, yeah, in an unsanctioned way. We didn't have any sponsors, but, they, <laughs> but I was. And that's kind of where I got, I got the draw of just talking about sports. And then you have a high school radio station. And you're fortunate for that reason, too. I mean, anybody who says that the teachers or the school that they went to didn't shape them in some way either doesn't understand how that happened or is not telling the truth. Did you, uh, did you gravitate to uh, broadcasting because you felt like you weren't going to be uh, playing it was, I never played. I, I just, you know, I play catch in the backyard or hit the wiffle ball or whatever it might be, but I never played in Little League or anything of that nature. I I called games and did sports on the radio because, number one, we had this high school radio station, and number two, because I found out later, that's where I felt comfortable. I mean, I don't have to walk up to my audience when I'm sitting on the radio. They just take what I'm saying, and there is no picture. So for me in high school, I didn't really firmly grasp that. But at some point over the course of time, it washed over me that, you know, what, of course you would do this. this the inhibitions are gone if you yeah, sit behind a microphone. Yeah, yeah. You're, um, uh, I read somewhere that um, you're... Your dad was involved in a, an accident right before you were born uh, in all places headed to Sox Park. Yeah. He, uh, my father and mother were walking uh, past a building near the ballpark, and a giant piece of concrete fell off a building onto my father. And he dealt with neck inj- issues and a neck injury and things like that that, that uh, lingered for a while um but yeah so you guys were going through he was going through that while you were going through your all of your yeah and from what i know about it absolutely is i i i know he was in the hospital for a while and then so was i so i you know i just i can't imagine what was like for my mother dealing with both of us in that way and then him seeing me where he was it's just it's it's almost foreign for me he was an air traffic controller. He, I, I, that's, that, that caught my eye because that was a pretty eventful time to be an air traffic controller. It was. Uh, President Reagan uh, challenged the air traffic controllers union uh, back then. This was 
for you, this is history. I actually was uh, alive <laughs> and paying attention uh, to that stuff back then. I think I may have been writing about it. I was paying attention as much as I could from a hotel room in Oklahoma City. When I was young, I remember my family and I going down to Oklahoma City so he could do his training. And uh, that's that's actually, oddly, my first recollection of sitting home and watching game shows is in Oklahoma City, is just hmm. sitting and watching, and, and that turned out to be a love for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you in high school, you, you, you brought, and did you decide then, yeah, this is what I want to do, I want to be a sportscaster, I want to be a broadcaster of sports? As, as much as you can decide firmly something then, I think I did. I mean, that's, that's why I applied to Syracuse. Yeah, which is a, a, a tremendous training ground for yeah. broadcasters. Yeah, I, that's, that's why I, I went to do it. And, and also, I'd add some reinforcement. I, I, when I was in band, I, was, I played the tuba, but I, I couldn't wear the sousaphone. It would have knocked me over, or it, it, it just not with my gait, it wouldn't have been a great idea. So the band director sent me up to do the announcements for the band. So coming up next, whatever we were playing that day, ragtime or whatever. And people said, wow, you're, you're kind of good at that. And then I did the high school radio station, and people said, wow, you're kind of good at that. And for somebody who never really had a skill, that's not to demean myself from my youth, but you never really have had something where people said, wow, you're really good at that. Yeah. That's, that's a reason to take something up as a vocation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Syracuse, uh, as I said, they they have a, they had a. In fact, I remember um, when I was a kid listening to New York Giants football games called by Marty Glickman, who I think was a a Syracuse grad, also he, a great Olympian. But um, they uh, they've named an award after him actually at the university. They yearly give the Glickman Award to an outstanding. Sports broadcaster from the university. Yeah, so what? So tell me about uh, how you advanced your career there. It's it's a it's a little petri dish that they've got at Syracuse University. It's uh it's an interesting, very intense, in a great way place. the The campus radio station WAER is. If you look and you say, "Wow, who went through there?" It's Mike Tarico, Sean McDonough, Ian Eagle. The people who have Dick Stockton, you know, generations of sports announcers that have gone through there, and you go and you learn how to write a sports cast, and you learn how to do play-by-play, and you learn what to do and you learn what not to do, and it's political as all organizations are, and it's fun as most organizations are, and you're there until five in the morning putting the finishing touches on this piece because you want it to be the best that it can possibly be because you know somebody else will do it that way if you don't. And you're surrounded by all these like-minded people, and it's very hard to duplicate. But you leave there saying, I really, number one, think I can do this, and I really want to be around this. At all times. I mean, they let you at the university as a student do play-by-play for all of the men's lacrosse, football, and men's basketball games at that one radio station. Talk about early exposure to something that's great fun and a great craft. And they're a big-time sports school. It's not as if they were a bunch of duffers, you know. Yeah, at that time, the football program was was doing well. It, they had just come off Donovan McNabb. Mm-hmm. And in 2003, my sophomore year, they won the, the national title. So I was reporting on Marshall Street, which is the campus main drag, the night that Syracuse won the national championship in basketball. I mean, there were people climbing trees. It was it was awesome. It was surreal. And what, just uh, in terms of, of um, 
your physical challenges, did, did, did they play into it at all at Syracuse, or, or was that were you simply judged by your by your talent and were, were able to over, overcome those challenges? I think the hardest thing, honestly, about having a disability is an overt one, at least for me who doesn't have this severe medical mm. challenges that some others might, if you just have an overt gait that's odd or something like that, the toughest thing to know is when somebody's judging you, when they're actually using it to affect your standing or not. But I never had people other than one instance outwardly even talk about it. One person, I, I was in charge of the station my senior year and one person got really frustrated and typed something online about me at some point being a nice story for somebody's magazine, but uh, not being a good leader. And, you know, does that hurt? Yes. But were there friends of mine that I, I have still that rallied around me for something like that? Absolutely. But for the most part, nobody really ever said anything. It was, especially when you're doing radio. I never did TV on campus there. I never had any aspirations of being a TV person. And again, you know. Because you were self-conscious about it? Uh, yeah. I, I, don't think, I don't think it requires a psychology degree to know that. But yeah, I was, I was self-conscious. There was, there was another student on campus that walked like I did. And every once in a while, he would, we'd end up across the street from each other or something like that. And he'd try to start a conversation. And I, I really didn't want to have the conversation. I'd say hello, but I didn't want to identify as somebody mm-hmm. with a disability. And is that, is that really short-sighted? Absolutely. But that's where I was at that point. Well, it's, it may be short-sighted. It's also pretty natural. I, think, I don't think you're the only person with disabilities who's gone through... Uh, who's gone through those feelings and dealt with them uh, over time. But you, whatever whatever obstacles you had, you had a pretty energetic uh, career. You went, to, you went down to Wake Forest. But just like reading your bio, you were running all over the country uh, calling games while you were in law school. Wake Law was as good to me as anybody could be. I was doing minor league baseball at the time. It started, I started going to law school when I was in A-ball in Salem, Virginia. And then that following year, I ended up taking a job with the AAA team in Syracuse. So I went back to Syracuse um, and was also working for this law While you were in law school? While I was in law school. So what Wake Forest essentially would do is they would allow me to miss a couple classes at the beginning of fall semester and a couple at the end of spring semester, and I would take my finals from a proctored location at Syracuse, Hmm. if need be. And then my final final of my law school career was one of those finals where you could be, it was open book, but not open computer or whatever it is. So the, the exam software would close down my computer, but I took the test from a hotel room in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was where you were there to call a game. There was I was there to call a game. It was the AAA Yankees at the time and, and our team, and they allowed me to do that. And there was a trust factor certainly there, but uh, it was I I am forever grateful to Wake and to the university I was working for at the time, High Point, doing basketball, and my employers for just letting me do that. I mean, you know, people don't do that. Why general. did you go to law school? I, 
I've, I've always liked educational pursuits, but I felt like if I had taken the LSAT because I like logic games, honestly. And a friend of mine, a close friend of mine from college was taking the LSAT at the end of college. And I decided, well, I, I'll take the test, see where it goes. And if I get a score that would allow me to go to law school, I think it's something that I would enjoy just knowing the way law school progresses someone mentally, I thought it would be worth it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, the, the Chiefs were a, a Washington Nationals minor league team? Yeah, yeah. So who were some of the players who came through there? <laughs> Boy, we didn't see anybody good. No, uh, <laughs> Steven Strasburg was there. His, uh-huh. his, his season coming through the minors, he made six starts. And it was essentially like the biggest vaudeville show you would ever see. <laughs> People came from Pennsylvania to see him pitch. Then the next year, we had Bryce Harper. So the young Nationals core mm-hmm. that they were trying to make good with and still are, but maybe on the back end of it, uh, those were the guys that came through Syracuse. And it was, uh, it was, it was wonderful to watch. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Jason Benetti. When you uh, when you were while you were doing law school, broadcasting Chiefs games, you also started doing other kinds of broadcasting, including with ESPN. Yeah, I, my TV stuff started while I was still in law school. I was doing high school football for Time Warner up in Syracuse. I would fly up on Friday and then fly back on Saturday after doing the game. And they were the ones that really gave me my first TV tape that I could hand to somebody like ESPN. And then when I, I got some work with ESPN, maybe 2012, I believe it was, um, you know, I got four games the first year and then eight games the second year. And it kind of just built from there. And you and and did you make the adjustment? You you said earlier that you were uncomfortable about TV. How was the, the those how were those first broadcasts? And when did you say, hey, you know what? I can handle this. Yeah, I. Um, <laughs> it was probably a couple years into it that I felt really okay on camera. But part of it is I just, with, with the way my eyes are, because of the CP, I have an eye that drifts. And I never really felt comfortable with the way that looked. And I talked to some producers who were very good about it and tried to work with me on kind of angling my head and glasses, no glasses, that sort of thing. How does this look best? And then at some point I said, you know what? It's going to look how it's going to look. If if a camera is going to look at me straight ahead, I can't look with both eyes directly at the camera. And whatever flows from that is going to flow from that. Well, obviously uh, what flowed from it was they were pleased with your work because you were getting more and more of it. So was there, there, wasn't, there wasn't blowback from viewers? and uh, Any game I do, honestly, if people are watching, I will get a tweet or two from people that say, hey, look over here, mm-hmm. or what's Jason looking at, or whatever it might be. But that's the case with anybody. Oh, yeah. Listen, as someone who's on television quite a bit, yeah. I, I get a lot of comments on my fast receding hairline and all kinds of other things so i uh, people people that's the thing about social media you know people feel free to say whatever the hell they want and and in whatever state they're in 
yeah. at that point. <laughs> right. And whether or not they actually— and, and it may be that some people watching baseball are, or other sporting events are having a libation or two. Yeah. I, and that, I rem, I re, that's what I think about when I see that, is, is no matter who you are, you're going to get some reaction from somebody by virtue of them watching you. It's a very unnatural thing to watch somebody talk about sports, let alone the idea of talking about sports while they're live anyway and narrating what's happening. But no matter who you are, you're going to get some reaction. And sometimes people just want me to react to them. I don't. I don't respond to that. I've never really understood the whole responding to trolls thing. Mm-hmm. If if we're going to call that trolling, some people are just saying what's on their mind. They don't understand that maybe if they thought a little deeper, they wouldn't. I There was one moment I was doing a game at Boise State, a football game, and I looked after the game at Twitter, and there was this thread. Somebody had tweeted something similar to, hey, look over here. And then they responded to their own tweet and said, oh, geez, I just looked up Jason Benetti. Now I feel awful. Mm-hmm. There was this existential... It wasn't t- Donald Trump, was it? <laughs> I don't think there was a check mark next to the name, <laughs> but I'll have to go back. Uh, you know, since I raised it, mm-hmm. um, what was your reaction during the campaign when that tape surfaced of him mocking uh, that New York Times reporter who uh, has some physical disability? Uh, seen it. Had it happened to me, people say that. I never thought the person saying that would end up being the president. But people who are leaders think things that maybe some of us don't think. And, and the way I, it was hard. It is really hard for me, honestly, to see that happen and to see people rally behind it. But I do know that any outgroup problem is rallyable if you choose to make that the shining light that you rally people around that that will just that's possible in groups and out groups have always existed but i mean for me the coolest thing about sports in the last six months for me having to do with that is i travel every week with a football crew for espn so same announcers some of the same staff things like that and right after the election, you know, that what you said was rolling around in my mind first and foremost, which is somewhat selfish, but also uh, natural, and also natural, but selfish, but natural as well. And I travel with this crew. It's me, the play by play announcer and the color analyst and a sideline reporter. I'm from Chicago. I have a disability. The color analyst is a former quarterback named Kelly Stoffer, who is from Nebraska. And the sideline reporter is a former lacrosse player who's from Yorktown uh, in New York. We have so many differences, so many. They're athletes. I'm not. Paul and I are from cities. Kelly's rural. Any number of other differences that you can, you can have. The next month, we basically at just about every meal on the road talked freely about politics and what are you fearful of and what do you like and what are you interested in and why is this hard for you and why is this so easy for you and and whomever voted for who doesn't even matter but three of us from completely different backgrounds sat down and and talked about it and we became such better friends because of that it was it was a very healing thing for all of us to understand why each of us was hurting or elated or whatever it might be and i thought my goodness 
these people will be friends of mine forever in a different way than just about anybody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing, the thing about that is you were thrown together by experience, but by, by, by the experience of doing these games. Um, and so, so many Americans live in silos today, and they don't get thrown together. We've had a lot of conversations around these microphones about um, the fact that World War II was, a, was a, an event that caused Americans from different backgrounds to serve side by side and depend on each other for their lives. And uh, what came out of that was a, uh, was a, uh, a deeper understanding um, and a breakdown of some barriers. Um, but those are silos are reforming. And so what you're describing is unfortunately not the norm. Uh, we're not having these conversations with people who have different lives, different concerns, different experiences. Um, so how, how you foment that, I don't know. But sports certainly is one, you know, uh, not to mention a tender subject to the Sox broadcaster. But one of the things that was striking about when the Cubs won the World Series was the uh, crowds that came out for that parade. Uh, hopefully you'll be, you'll have a parade of your own sometime in the next uh, so so many years while you're at the microphone, but um, uh, but it was a very very diverse group of I mean seven, five million or whatever the number was, and so for whatever people's differences were for that from that day, uh, everyone was excited and part of one community. I think people are sort of hungering for that, and sports does do that. I, I think that's 100% true. I, I, as, as you look at, the, and it's not a tender subject in, in <laughs> one way. I mean, Len Casper, the Cubs TV guy, is a wonderful friend. Yeah, and was guy. such an advocate for me yeah. in getting this job. And, and I've had so many people like that, that just even the reminder of the fact that he's part of that organization is good enough for me to understand that it's a happy time for him. I mean, mm -hmm. three forty-five in the morning, I found out when I woke up the next day, I had a text from Len that was just a picture of him with the world series trophy. Like, Hey, guess what? We won, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's not even fair. It was my first season. Like, what are the odds of that? Plus, you probably knew that already. Anyway. Yeah, I had, I had become aware of that by virtue of the magic of television. Uh, no, but it's, it's a wonderful thing for the city. Yeah. And I know Sox fans don't like it. There are some Sox fans who do, but some Sox fans who don't. And I get that, and I totally understand that. But in terms of bringing people together yeah. and, and, and having us... Us, all of us. The the one place you can get together is you're, it's a baseball city. People love baseball in the town. They understand it. They're smart. You can't really put things by them. It's a sharp baseball town. So I'm good with that. And honestly, had I been in town, I would have had to really think hard about not going. Yeah, you know, um, I come from New York. So when I came to Chicago many, many, many years ago, uh, I didn't have the tribal constraints. And uh, so I've been a fan of both teams. And I was there in 2005 when the Sox won the World Series. And um, it, was, it was a great moment. It just wasn't quite – it didn't have quite the mythic uh, uh, 
quality of the Cubs that's what, thing. That's what happens when it takes 108 years. Right, exactly. Yes, they did a lot to build suspense here, a lot to build uh, <laughs> excitement. Um, but uh, I, I will tell you this, I went to the uh, I went to one of those games with my father-in-law, who was about 90 then, and he had grown up in St. Louis, and he went to the World Series in 1926. He was at the World Series in 1959, and he was at, and I was sure that there was no one else on the planet who could claim to have been at those three World Series. And this was the game when Podsednik hit the walk-off home run. Mm. We were walking out some... 400-pound guy, came up the aisle, exultant, picked my father-in-law up, hoisted him in the air, and I'm like yelling, put him down, he's 90. <laughs> my father-in-law was so joyous. He, 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 he couldn't care less that the guy was uh, risking his life at that point because the Sox had won the game. So. And it wasn't, are you Republican, are you Democrat? Not at all. So I can hoist you up because I only care about you for that circumstance. Not at all. Not at all. And it goes to that point and, um, uh, about the nature of community. And communities grow around uh, teams that break down uh, other barriers. Just getting back to your narrative, uh, how did the Sox uh, job come your way? This well, is a big this because, as you point out, this is a big time baseball town. It is, it is, and it was so surreal when it became possible when you first throw your hat in the ring figuratively for something like this. You think, well, that would be interesting, but I'm doing okay. I'm doing games for ESPN, and and. I'd love to have this, but it's kind of a pipe dream no matter what. And it was funny. I, I was going to Chicago. I'd heard that Hawk might be scaling back, Hawk Harrelson. and Long-time broadcaster yeah. for the White Sox. And the Sox, the Sox might have somebody take those games. <clears throat> they, they might be deciding to do that. So I actually I called Len Casper, and I said, hey, Len— and my relationship goes back with him to just sending him a tape at one point years ago and saying, will you watch this? And I had read some of Len's writing about his anxiety in the local papers in Chicago. And I think it really made him human for me. And I thought it was really, really brave for him to write something like that as a TV announcer. And somebody who's had inhibitions before, I thought, my goodness. He was, uh, uh, I I missed the piece. So he had inhibitions about yeah, he he's, he just was worried always about what the audience reaction was going to be or whether he's done enough prep work or is he good enough. Just that type of yeah. stage anxiety, I think, that comes with – not that it's staged. I think a, lot of, a lot of successful people who are on a public stage share that quality. Right, right. And I, I just thought it was extremely brave. So that's, that's how my relationship started with him. And then he says, um, I think you should call the White Sox and tell them that you're interested which you know is sort of the flip of I'm the one that doesn't want to go out on the limb here because I want I, look I have a pulse and I'm an announcer of course I'm interested in the White Sox job why would they not know that so I called the White Sox and I asked for Brooks Boyer who's the the head of marketing for the Sox and has been with the organization for a long time and I said to the secretary hey um, just have him give me a call or let him know that I'm interested and here's my number called me a couple hours later, Brooks did, to apologize that it had taken so long, and then said, yeah, we're interested. Are you going to be in Chicago at any time? And I happened to be going in about a month for a reunion 
of my high school radio station. So WHFH from Homewood mm-hmm. Flossmoor is having a, a reunion, a 50th anniversary type special for this, the, the media department. So I was going to that. I go to the event. A couple days later, I go to the ballpark. The Sox invite me in, and I talk to a whole group of people from Comcast and WGN, the rights holders, and the Sox. And we had a very nice meeting. I came in with some ideas. I was hoping that it went well. Got a call back maybe a month later. Hey, can you fly in and meet with Jerry Reinsdorf? And I thought, I can clear my schedule, (laughs) I think, and make that. So Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox. Right, right. And... So I met Jerry. I uh, I don't know whether or not he uh, liked that I didn't take the cigar that he offered me, <laughs> but we talked baseball. He offers everybody cigar, right? Right. And I, my my one thought as this kind of was hanging around and lingering after the meeting, and I was waiting for the Sox to call, was man, did I just by not taking the cigar, did I just ruin this? Does he not <laughs> like me? And I realized that he's not at all that type of person in any way, shape, or form after the fact. Um, but we talked baseball. It was great. The Sox called me about a week later, flew me out to meet Steve Stone, mm-hmm. who's a my color, partner. Long-time color man for the both the Sox and the Cubs. Yeah, yeah. Chicago institution for a lot of great reasons. And we went to Don and Charlie's here in Arizona, where we're sitting now, and hit it off within 120 seconds. Mm-hmm. Same type of sense of humor, analytical type guy. I... I'm just thinking, sitting there at the dinner, this has to happen now. Like, this is the final piece. I want to work with this person. Because, you know, if you're sitting on a panel with people or you're working with somebody, I'm sure it's the way of the campaign as well, where you just have this energy between two people or between six people. It makes all the difference. If there's chemistry, it makes all the difference, and viewers know that. And you don't want it to go away ever. Right. Because you want that to always elevate you and elevate the thing that you're reaching for. And that's what I felt with Steve. And I was so overjoyed that we get to work together. Yes, it's the hometown team. And yes, that's everything that I had always thought it was going to be and then some. But to have somebody like Steve next to me to work toward this common goal and just have some laughs and have a good time with it and think down the same lines is it's a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, you mentioned Reinsdorf, who I, who's a friend of mine, and um, uh, after you got hired, um, I wrote him a note saying, it's very cool. Um, as someone who's deeply involved in sort of disabilities issues, and he said, the honest to God truth is I had no idea. He said, I just love the way uh, I just love the way the guy called games, which is probably exactly what you want to hear. It's what I've always wanted to hear. Yeah. It's, I want the work to speak for itself. I, I don't want someone to... And this is, this is the, the cognitive dissonance when I see people being legislated against. I've never wanted someone to legislate me into a job. But then I think, well, what if there were actual barriers to me getting into this career? What if somebody in high school said, no, you can't. You actually can't because you can't look at the camera or you walk funny and we can't take you to a golf outing or whatever it might be. I wouldn't be here. It just it wouldn't have happened. So it's like it's like the um, the end of Little Miss Sunshine. Have you seen yes, uh-huh. when when the brother realizes that he's red, green, colorblind and can't fly planes because of that? I think about that all the time. Like, 
what if somebody said there is actually a reason you can't do this thing you love? And it, it hurts. But, but to have somebody like Jerry Reinsdorf say, I, not, I don't, it's not even I don't care. It's I don't even know. Right. It's not even in the realm of something that is something I'm perceiving. That, that's magic. And I'll forever be grateful to him for that. We're going to take another break. And we'll be back with Jason Benetti. You talked a little bit about the environment in which we're in, and I guess my question to you is: um, you, you're in a you're an unusual position because you've you have the ability, an extraordinary ability, to articulate the experiences that you've been through, and there, are, as you point out, just as in any other realm of our society, there's a broad spectrum of people who fought through different disabilities. Uh, some can uh, speak uh, powerfully for themselves, some less so. What are your concerns about where we are right now, and what are your hopes for the future? Um, my concern is that there will be people who are like me or like somebody else in an outgroup who won't be able to have the feeling that I've had and others that I know of getting to do what they love to do and having people see that their brains can fire in a way that might be high level to be able to embrace the thing they love because there were no barriers to that simple, silly barriers, first blush barriers first reaction detractions that that type of hey i see this one thing about you so you can't that leaves us all in a vulnerable position and it and it 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 tries to take away our ability to go deeper and i think i mean there have been so many wonderful books about what happens when we look past our first blush reaction there's a reason eyewitness testimony doesn't get a whole lot of great love in our society and the psychological research works against it because we have high adrenaline when we first see something like that or meet somebody Uh, my fear is that we're going to end up in a place where we're all being more reductive than we need to Uh, once people around me learn to look past their first reaction, my disability's gone to them. My friends have, have shown me that over the course of time. And my hope is simply this. Th- those people all still exist. It's in all of us. It honestly is in all of us to be able to look past our first reactions about people. And I, I just, I think we don't need to be insidious in teasing the opposite out of people because it we all have the ability to go past our first reaction yeah i would only say this uh, I, I would amen to what you just said but also note that there are people with profound challenges who um who who can achieve happiness who can do things uh if they get the opportunity uh to it's not only people who function on a very high level, but people who function on any level. And, uh, you know, I speak as a parent now. We as a society need to value them as well. And it's very 
in these very freighted times, one fear is that many of those people will be lost because they don't get the support that they need. Um, and, and to and that count on. to that point, the idea of discarding the first thought you have about somebody is to see them for their highest level of happiness right to help them achieve whatever that highest level is and none of us know what knows what the cap is for any of ourselves but to have people trying to elevate that Mm -hmm. is is to me what makes living in a world where there are other people most worthwhile yeah i i i think we often forget the goodness of people there's a lot of kindness out there uh, as well as uh, occasional cruelty and um, I think of the, uh, you know, that's tragic, tragic, horrific story of these two Indian engineers in Kansas who were shot, one killed by a guy who said, "Get out of my country," because he thought they were Iranian. But the story, the the, the part of the story that was missed was, uh, or wasn't dwelled upon enough, was that after the shooter left to get his gun. And before people realized he was coming back, there was a patron in the bar who came over to those guys and bought them a drink. And they had a discussion about what had just happened that was, uh, you know, a really healing discussion. And when the shooter came back, another young man gave chase after he left because he said, I didn't want this man killing other people. And he got shot, I think, three times. Um, Those people are... um, those people are are Americans. Those people are good Americans, you know, and uh, deserve um, deserve to be highlighted as well. That spirit deserves to be highlighted as well. I mean, what what happens if fifteen people with disabilities, who just happen to have disabilities but are not connected at all, commit crimes next month? You coming for me? Whomever that might be, whomever you is, I, it's so it's it's. It just leaves all of us exposed to being the next group. That's all that does. And that's what hurts me most, is when we are all one trait. If that trait becomes the bad trait, we're in trouble. Right. Rather than appealing to our common humanity. Right. Which is always available. Always. And has always been available. And in my experience... And, and that I do not speak for everybody else's experience. I know people have it hard, harder than I do in a lot of ways, and I've met a lot of those people. But in my experience, that, that caring and that humanity and that rising tide lifts all boats. Action, not just words, but action of trying to help somebody maybe avoid that frictional unemployment or avoid the result that would be the easy result of not putting me on camera or whomever it is because of whatever trait it is. Anytime you move past that, you tend to have a really wonderful thing happen for you mentally and mm-hmm. empathetically. And, and it's a feeling that is really not matched in humanity. Right. It's also strengthening to uh, us as a community, as a society. Um, so... I would be remiss having you here if I didn't ask you a little bit about baseball and um, where you uh, where you see your own team, but more the sport itself and how uh, 
what the the future for the game is because you hear a lot of complaints in the leagues trying you know the game's too slow it's not it's not uh, suitable for the viewing habits of today um and uh, where people are into action more you know constant action where do you see the game today i am fearful of making the game into a three-inning, ten-game <laughs> season. The slippery slope is not lost on me, certainly. I know Major League Baseball has data that suggests it's time to do some things, and I can understand that. Absolutely. But if we keep chasing attention spans down the hill, we're not going to end up with the most beautiful part of baseball, and that is the investment in something longitudinal. Baseball is a thousand-page book. And just because people aren't picking those up right now doesn't mean there's not great value in a thousand-page book. So I have some fears about that. But I also think that there have been times in this game's history where games have, yes, been much quicker. They have. If you call the strike zone like the strike zone is in the book, the game is probably quicker if you do indeed tinker with extra innings possibly. And, and yeah, I know some people say, well, that's, that's not the way the game's been. When the game was first invented, or at least early in the game's history, you could catch a batted ball on one bounce and have the person be out. If, if that was proposed by Rob Manfred right now, people would say, you're changing the game completely. It's inherently different. That's what it was like. Mm-hmm. You could do that. At points, the mound has been moved, the plate has been changed, everything has been changed at some point or another. I think the one thing you want to keep is the longitudinal nature of baseball in some way. I'm for changing the game. What do you mean by that, the longitudinal nature? Meaning that, yes, sometimes it's going to be boring. It has to be boring at some points. But Chess is boring when you're sitting and staring at a board. But those mental processes that go through knight to e4 or bishop to a2. You don't broadcast those too, do you? Boy, I tell you, the chess (laughs) ratings in this country, if we aired it a little more, would skyrocket, I think. No, I, I, but that's what I think about too. I've, I've had this conversation with a friend of mine. You don't see chess on the air. You don't. For you a know, reason. we once there was, there once there was when when Bobby Fischer played Boris Spassky yep. in the early seventies. There was a there was a commentator Shelby Lyman who who broadcast these things. I I was ill that summer. I remember the because of the chess or no no. I okay. was uh, in fact I got interested in chess because there was nothing else I could do, and um, and I I literally watched chess matches broadcast. So did you uh, feel you were better for it? Well, it killed time, I'll say that. Uh, but uh, That's not the new slogan for MLB. It killed time, I'll say that. Listen, here's my view about baseball. Yeah. Uh, and I have this conversation all the time with my wife, who, who, who our first date was at a, we, we met in a co-ed basketball game. Our first date was at a, a Bulls game. Really? And, um, and she, she loves that game because it, there's a lot of action in it. Uh, and she said, baseball's just, it's boring. Uh, and I, I always say, look, when you go to a hockey game, a football game, a basketball game, but when you go to a baseball game, you say, I'm going to the ballpark. It's different. Mm-hmm. The whole experience of being in a ballpark, 
being able to be intensely interested in a game but still share time with whomever you're with. Um, you know, I grew up going to the ballpark with my dad every weekend, uh, and it's a special thing. Uh, so I'm with you. I'm not into speed uh, – into the sort of speed dating version of baseball. Uh, I, I like the experience of being at the ballpark. Yeah, we need time to ruminate about what would I do here? Strategically, how would I go about this? I mean, we all, I think, when we went to the ballpark as kids, we thought, oh, should you put this person in? Would I put that person in? Which player do I want? Do I want Robin up? Do I want Frank up? You know, do I want Ray up? Who do you want up at that point? Should you pinch hit? Should you bring this reliever in? What's this? What's going to happen? And even keeping score, right? We all have our own ways. If, if you and I right now just showed each other how we kept score, we'd be like, wow, I didn't know one thing, two things, whatever it might be, that's even beautiful in itself. But yeah. the, the length of the game and the length of the season gives us something to think more deeply about than I think the other sports allow for. Yeah, well, I always, uh, you know, uh, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker last year about the Cubs' run for the, for the title, and I was here in spring training last year, and it, it struck me that, you know, a baseball season is a little like a, a campaign in that it's long, it has its ups and downs. You have to deal with the emotional highs and lows of that. Uh, there are all these strategic decisions and adjustments you have to make. Uh, a lot of it depends on the cohesion of the group. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's part of the that's part of the deal. You you when you you talked about Nintendo when you were a kid. Um, there's been this explosion of data. Uh, we had Theo Epstein on here some time ago, and we obviously he's steeped in that. Um, how much has that changed the game, and how much has it changed broadcasting? I think the broadcasting part is coming. I don't think it's changed broadcasting enough yet. And I, I did think it was interesting when you had Theo on that he said maybe 3 or 4% yeah. of the game we know about. Yeah. That's, that was shocking to me. Yeah. For somebody who's really deeply in it to say that, I mean... That's what motivates him. He's always looking for that next 1% that nobody else has figured out yet. It's, it, it, but but uh, to your point on the broadcasting end, Steve Stone and I had this lengthy discussion over the All-Star break, right before the All-Star break last year, about Jose Quintana, Sox left-handed pitcher, who historically has had difficulty getting wins in games, whatever that might be. Well, because they've historically had trouble getting runs in games right. that he pitches. I mean, that's part of the problem. Uh, that is true. That's 100% <laughs> true. But even even when his run support has been there, it hasn't matched up with his best performances. So he has been low in the win column. I said to Steve, who's going to get paid more? The guy with the 350 ERA and uh, 12 wins or a guy with a 450 ERA and 20 wins. And there were a couple other numbers in there as well. But he was taking the guy with the win total. Mm -hmm. And Steve is a terribly smart man, and I, yeah. I love him. Who won the Cy Young Award himself once as the yeah. best pitcher in the league. Right, and had, and had numbers in both categories. But the mm -hmm. win total, I think, propelled him mm -hmm. even more he so. He won 25 games, yeah. I think, that yeah. year. So... We had this lengthy discussion, and, and there are people on both sides of that. For me, it's easy. The guy who gives up fewer runs and fewer base runners, 
I don't care if he won the game because he didn't really win the game. The circumstances won him the game or lost him the game. But now we're having this nature versus nurture dispute (laughs) on a Major League Baseball broadcast, which doesn't exactly play. I mean, there's a reason not everybody's walking around with a psychology degree. Although everybody sits on a bar stool and has these kinds of arguments. That's true. That's true. But I think think the fact that there are some people in this country who are fearful of automation. Mm -hmm. And then you get big data in baseball. And if you overwhelm people with that, that, that's going to cause some trouble. But but I think if we get smarter about what baseball is and smarter about who the great players are, we're broadening the scope of who the stars can be in the game. Yeah, I think that's because, great. Because you're using different indices of, 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 of what real production is. How much do you steep yourself in, in data? I, I, every day I look at what Fangraphs is doing, what baseball reference has – some stuff that that Darren Wilman and the Statcast people have done at Major League Baseball. I want to know about those things, but I'm. We got into this for stories too. I mean, data tell stories. You know that. Yes. So that if I'm just taking the numbers into the show with me, I'm not doing it right. Mm-hmm. I don't think they they need to be there to help tell the story, but certainly they're not the only thing. One one thing that's changed a lot since I was a, a kid watching baseball. It, you mentioned earlier uh, how how you pay people. People get paid a lot, and and people get paid a lot even if they are not terribly productive. Uh, just the salaries are are very high in all of professional sports. I think you you mentioned Mr. Minnick was that your teacher? Minnick, yeah, Minnick, yeah, yeah. Who probably uh, makes uh, made a modest wage to change people's lives and you've got baseball players who are mediocre 25th guys on the bench who are making pretty good money and certainly the guys sort of the mid-range players can get tens of millions of dollars um has is there a danger of sports pricing fans out of their arenas out of their ballparks i think so certainly but i also think that the the greater danger is that sports not embrace the teaching component that sports can be a place where you learn about physics and social studies and math and all of that i mean that would allow for teachers to then slowly climb up the hero ladder once more mm-hmm. which we could use a lot of mm-hmm. so my feeling is I go into a show knowing that I could pull from 1,200,000 000, million different realms. And that's the beauty of baseball. It's a jumping off point for a conversation about whatever it might be, where somebody's from, uh, his love for pets, his interest in volcanoes, whatever it might be. That's what baseball is. It's just a trampoline in a lot of ways. And as you're talking about sitting at the ballpark and spending time with the family, hey, that cotton candy vendor looks like blank. Or, hey, this outfield sign reminds me of whatever. Baseball is is a living memory. Yeah, you know, uh, last year in his final year of broadcasting, the Cubs turned over their broadcast for one inning to Vin Scully, uh, who was 87 at the time, I guess, 87, 88, the great Los Angeles Dodger, first Brooklyn Dodger broadcaster. And 
it was one of the most enjoyable 20 minutes that I've spent in a really long time because he just created word pictures and made these references that um, were just transfixing. And it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. He He's like an encyclopedia that turns its own pages, <laughs> which I wish we could have created in this society. I, the fact that he's no longer doing games is a melancholy thing for all of us who look at baseball through that type of creative prison, prism because and it might be a prison for some others but <laughs> but through that prism we we see what baseball can do culturally and when when Vin Scully started broadcasting the world was a wholly different place i mean he got to know Jackie Robinson in the middle of what Jackie was dealing with in this country, breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball and all of the negatives that come along with that. If we think we have trolls today, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the, the Twitter trolls don't throw things at me right. and you. Right. Right. Yeah. He, he, Vince Scully lived, lived all that history and more, and it, w- it infused his, his uh, broadcasts with this treasure trove of 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 stories do you look at i mean would you watch a vin scully do other broadcasters watch people like him sort of these iconic broadcasters and say and steal from him and i mean you can't help but the the people i listed earlier the the sean mcdonough's the iron eagles vin scully those types of people have this wonderful way of hooking you about a person and bringing you in and then there's a punchline at the end that you didn't expect or maybe there's not a punchline and maybe you just feel something but this wonderful ability to navigate a game and a story at the same time with wit charm whatever it might be and humanity that we all are better off for if we just wanted to narrate a game we could have robots do that but we want someone who sees something, has it remind him or her of something else, and then have that then be something that I never forget. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the small things you recall people saying, whether it be wit or charm or a story, I mean, Sean McDonough has turned into a, a, a very good friend. Sean, who did the Red Sox for a long yes. time, and I think it's a tragedy he's not doing baseball for somebody because he's so good at it. But... You know, I, I've I watched him do Big Monday on ESPN for so long, and there was one game he was working with Jay Billis and Bill Raftery, and they come on the air, and Sean says, they were in Hartford, he says, live from the XL Center with the two XL egos, Bill Raftery <laughs> and Jay Billis. <laughs> and just that moment, uh, there, are, there are so many of those rolling through my brain yeah. of great announcers who have taken the language to another level and repartee and beautiful linguistic flourishes and sean's gonna be mad that i keep doing this impersonation like i (laughs) it's become like a thing at espn but sean sean's a wonderful guy and i and eagle and all of these people and vin who tell these stories in such a way that make it not robotic oh yeah it's a beautiful craft it is absolutely art and that's that's why to do this well i i suspect that people will be saying 
we, they'll be telling Jason Benetti broadcast stories uh, in the future as lovingly as you just did. And uh, we're lucky to have you uh, in Chicago. And thank you so much for being with us today. David, that's very kind of you, and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.